morning. Today's scripture reading will be found in the book of James, chapter 5, starting at verse 1, and I'll be reading to verse 6. And in your pew Bibles, that would be on page 1013. Again, that's James, chapter 5, starting at verse 1, and I'll be reading to verse 6. And in your pew Bibles, page 1013. Come now, you rich, weep, and hollow, for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you have uh, closed your Bibles, you can open it back up to James 5. I'm going to give a little bit of an introduction because it seems to be um, that I do not preach frequently. And so when I go back into the book of James, I feel that I have to give a little bit of introduction, especially if anybody has not read the book of James. And so in, in this, I'm at the fifth chapter, and every time I preach, I just continue to go to the next section of scripture. But James is the half-brother of Jesus. He is the author. And the writing is summed up, this writing, this book, is summed up of a collection of wisdom sayings. It's very energetic, kind of in a scolding tone sometimes. And this section we're here to uh, listen to is probably the roughest rebuke that James gives in this book. The recipients of this letter were Jewish Christians who were dispersed from Jerusalem through persecution and poverty. And believe it or not, James is still addressing these Christians, even though it seems like he's talking to non-believers. This book is written to the church. It's about what faith looks like while giving a warning to the rich. Last week, uh, we, some of us went to a youth camp, and there was some shenanigans going on at the cabins at night, and so the directors of that camp called those involved among the crowded lunchroom to come forward in front of everyone to discuss their punishment. And even though the directors were addressing the offenders, what they did spoke volumes to the non-offenders in that room. And in a similar way, these six verses that we're going to go through are calling out the non-believers, calling out those who are rich and, and wicked in their dealings, and they speak volumes to us believers who would be hearing this letter read. God's judgment is coming to the oppressors, and he hears your cry for help. God always wins. The book of James has focused on faith and action, what it looks like to live out your faith in God. If you are saved, then according to the Bible, you are justified by faith. It means God counts you or declares you righteous. You are a sinner, but you are righteous by the acts of Jesus Christ. God gives you the faith and repentance, those gifts, to believe this and to receive Jesus as your Savior. And so if you are justified, you will bear fruit. If you do not bear fruit, 
then chances are you have not been justified by faith. I like the book of James. It's easy to read, and basically it preaches itself. And it addresses all kinds of topics, like thoughtless and hasty talk. And he tells those who are full of it to be slow to speak, slow to anger, and maybe just a little bit more quicker to hear. It also rebukes those with sentimental remarks that lack substance, those that say, well, I hope you're okay, and do nothing about it. The book of James also focuses on our actions, reminding us that faith without works is dead. And over and over, God uses the book of James to tell us to humble ourselves, that there is only one who is able to judge rightly, and that is God himself. And when we make plans for prosperity, he doesn't condemn us uh, for the act of making money. What he does condemn is the rich, who, what they do with their riches, when they use it for their own selfish ambition by neglecting the divine providence of God and while relying on their own riches. Usually this harms others. He calls us to take special care of those who are poor. The book of James continues to unfold this main point that the new life of Christ should be a result of a life of obedience to the word of God. If we have been given faith from God, then it works. Faith works. And at the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5 where we're in today, there's three words that uh, are the same. It's come now you. And he uses this phrase to get people's attention. It's like, hey you, listen up. It would be a good place to, at, at the end of a letter, uh, to wake people up who are listening to the full letter in front of uh, in, in church. And so he addresses the sin of pride in chapter 4, who would forget their lives that are completely in the hand of God. And then this come now statement, he warns of the coming judgment against those who would prefer their wealth and power to oppress God's people. The first come now statement addresses Christians to repent and to humble themselves and to receive the grace of God. This statement, however, offers no remedy. It just tells people of the impending doom that awaits. And I hope none of you are of this second crowd. The connecting phrase between these two phrases, the one I, I if you want to look, I preached about this last year and now this one. There's an important verse and it says this, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it's a sin. And that's the question I want to ask you. As you listen, however you're using your money, your time, your actions, or your speech, if you know the right thing to do and you fail to do it, it's a sin. Maybe you won't listen to the rest of this thing, and that's fine. I'm kind of boring. I'd rather you list down the various things that you're doing in your life right now. Examine them, whether or not they glorify God, whether or not they're helpful for others, whether or not they're sinful or that they harm people around you. But I do ask that you do pay attention to what James says. James offers up tests for us, whether our faith is real, all throughout this book. And he calls us to evaluate the validity of our faith. And I ask you to do it as well. And the best way to do this is during conflict. And conflict always tends to happen with treasures, with riches. 
And whether it's yours or someone else's, it, it will happen. Is your faith real? We all know that in every church there is wheat and tares and Christians and non-Christians. I don't want anyone here to fall under the illusion of being a Christian if you're not, and neither does James. And how a person feels about and handles wealth is a good test, and it reveals the spiritual state of your heart. James, even though he addresses Christians in a church, seems to be writing to people who are not Christian. They may have given a profession of faith, but they continue to live around brothers and sisters of the faith, and their love of money seems to control their life and their heart. Where are you stockpiling your treasure? Where are you placing your wealth? Better yet, what are you investing in? What are you teaching your kids to invest in? The possessions of this world that are going to burn up, they're not going to last. The Bible pleads for us to take possession of that which God freely gives to you through his son. That's the gift that never fades. It never rots. We are to seek wisdom from above and to be doers of the word. I have a neighbor down the road, and uh, I've seen from time to time work on their, his car. It's parked in front of his house over and over, sometimes just the hood's up, and uh, he's trying to fix something or put some extra parts on it, and I don't know what's going on with that. But recently I went by, and I found his car pushed away from the house, and the front of it had been burned. And not only did his car burn, part of his house got damaged by the fire from this car burning. And I don't know what happened. I, I do pray that the guy is okay and that uh, things are fine. Um, I don't know where he's at now because no one's there. But the whole scene made me think about the sadness of the predicament, sadness of what we do with our things, our time and our money. And we make every effort spending and fixing what things we have on this world. We have no idea what tomorrow will bring. James 5, 1 through 6 is a good passage to get us to think about our riches. How we should go about thinking about this section? Well, first we can be comforted by the fact that God always wins. I've said this already. He will not let injustice go unpunished and we should also hear, heed the, the warning of what he gives us a warning to, and that is to rich. Riches are a trap. We are all vulnerable to them, no matter where you are in life. If you think you're not rich, you think this uh, sermon or passage should be for someone else who ought to hear about this, I want to ask you a question. In the past year, have you gone without several meals because you couldn't afford it? Have you gone without a home to live in? Clothes on your back? I, I don't think so. I think many here have uh, been given provisions by God. If you are in desperate need of something, I do want to tell you that we have a benevolence uh, ministry here at this church. If you have unavoidable circumstances beyond your control, and that does happen, we as a church uh, go out of our way to help those who are in need. However, this passage is for those who are making ends meet, for those who are okay, those who've been provided well. 
you are rich because of the common grace that God has given you. He provides for you. And as a U.S. citizen, you're probably one of the wealthiest people groups in the whole world. Being rich is relative. It's your perspective. You may think others are rich who seem to have more money, but again, those with less than you think that you're rich. It's just like I might think that Mike is older than me, but Jade Barrows thinks I'm old. It's relative. Whoever is, who's old? Who's oldest? I don't know. Um, everyone here thinks that someone else is richer than you. I know where we live is kind of a, um, a place of, we're not affluent here. We're, we have to actively work to make income. Many of us still, though, have more than we need. I think you, most of us would have more than a few pairs of shoes, maybe a, a car or two, well-maintained homes, vacation plans. Even if you feel like you're broke, just bear with me. Hopefully God will change your thinking about what your possessions are. Wealth has nothing to do with the amount of money you have. It has everything to do with your heart attitude with the possessions that you have, the possessions that you already own. And so today's outline, if you have a piece of paper in front of you, or if not, uh, I have basically just two points. There's an intro, which we're going through, and then there's two points. The verdict, which is verses 1 through 3, and the evidence. The verdict has five sections, and they all come by the word uh, letter G. That is goods and greenbacks, garments, gold, grubby gouda, and guts. The evidence will is uh, is going to be a lot less time involved. The first point is going to take most of the sermon, so don't worry. I'll give you the other points when we get to them. This, uh, this statement that I have in your, hopefully you have it in your bulletin, um, th there was two statements that I thought were very important. It's, you have laid up treasures in the last days. And the other is, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. And as I read through this passage over and over, I found these two statements basically highlight this sermon. You have laid up earthly treasure for the last days, and that might be you have laid up treasures for retirement. Or maybe you've laid up treasures despite the days that Rome invaded Jerusalem. Or maybe it's you've laid up treasures despite the last days of heaven and earth. Whichever the last days are, it's unwise to store earthly treasures and to put your trust in them. You ought to be weeping and howling and about the miseries that are coming upon you. The other statement is the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord. God knows all and he sees all. He sees what you do with your money. He knows how you mishandle it and he knows who the oppressed are. Those who have been taken advantage of. God always wins. And the Lord of hosts is the Lord's Sabbath. It means he is majestic in power and rule. He is the ruler of the whole world. He is the commander of the host of heaven. And God has sovereign authority to judge the unrighteous. 
He will surely condemn the greedy rich who have uselessly hoarded and have been self-indulgent, who have spent their unjust wealth. He heard the cries of the Israelites when they were in slavery and delivered them from Egypt. I think he will hear the cries of those who have uh, been oppressed, those of you who have been oppressed. Point number one, verses one through three. Verse one hits us like a kind of a ton of bricks, but hopefully it's the ton of bricks that God's word helps to shape our lives. Verse one says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Don't you, don't you just notice that when the wealthy lose their wealth, uh, they lament by the state of their affairs? We know this is true when the stock market crashes or for all of us when ga gas prices go through the roof. That's not the lament that is coming for you. This is the judgment of God that comes to those who misuse God's provisions. People who put their trust in riches they have no stable security. We know this from Matthew. It says, do not lay up treasures for yourself on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there is your heart also. It's not just the rich. It's those who have few earthly possessions. They also must look to the Lord for their need and honor him with their humble dependence, knowing that our position in Christ doesn't depend on the amount of money we have, doesn't depend on the possessions we have. Those who have been blessed with an abundance of worldly goods must humbly acknowledge that God is their source of everything, just as he is their source of salvation. They have been given the gift that they could never afford. No one can buy this. No one can buy Jesus' blood. Each of these verdicts that we're going to go through are what will happen to the riches one has. But the statements are past tense. And so it makes us wonder, what is God thinking about? Well, maybe he's talking in terms as, well, as far as he's concerned, this is really just about as what's already happened. Maybe also he's talking about your heart and the effects of riches that it may have already have happened to it. The first one, good and greenbacks. Goods and greenbacks is uh, currency. It's in verse 2, and it says, your riches have rotted, and uh, we know uh, we use uh, greenbacks now, coin or dollars or credit cards, but back then they used goods to barter with and to trade. It was grains and, and wines that were choice but they didn't last long. Um, they, they last a lot longer now. We know that. Although a lot, I do see myself throwing moldy bread out and fuzzy uh, strawberries from time to time. But the world's goods come from God, and they come with two conditions. They are never to be the source of our hope, and they are to be shared generously. The thief must no longer uh, thief or steal, but he should get a job in to share. So that means uh, you either share or you're a thief. Hoarders are actually thieves because they fail to share. And so 
maybe God is saying to their heart that it might be rotten like the riches that they're hoarding. Garments are another form of currency. It's clothing. Your garments are moth-eating. Heirlooms were uh, a great form of currency. They lasted a little bit longer, but yet they were susceptible to moths. And I know we're a throwaway nation, so it doesn't really affect us. Maybe somebody might have a wedding dress in their closet. Uh, But if we do have nice clothes, we have to take care of it, right? We have to do laundry all the time to keep it from being um, disintegrated by whatever dirt. But God might be saying that our hearts might be eaten away at the constant focus of our gathering and our taking care of the, even the clothes that we have, the hoarding of heirlooms. Riches can be a blessing or a curse, depending on whether our wealth is our supreme goal or whether God's glory is our supreme goal. See, a mature believer, he can hold on to his riches loosely. And guys, speaking of that, there are things that we do need to let go of our house, in our house, things that we hold on to, things that just are not really appropriate to hang on to. Gold is the longest-lasting currency. That's in verse 3. It says, your gold and your silver have corroded. Now, back then, they did not have gold as pure as ours. It was mixed with other metals, and so over time, it would corrode, and it would tarnish. And we know that even silver, if some of you have silver today, it tarnishes, and you have to fix it and clean it. And even your rings, when you get gold rings for the wedding, you have to clean them. Maybe God's saying that the tarnishing that's happening is the tarnishing of your heart, who's someone who only sees gold as their true source of hope. It is common knowledge that those with more money tend to be less happy. The things that we have, it's never enough, is it? There was a recent article I read just last week. It was about a young lady who won a local lottery, and within a month she went bankrupt because she was buying designer purses, things to carry the money that she really no longer had. Proverbs has a nice pithy saying about this. Proverbs 23, 4 through 5 says, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it's gone. And for when suddenly it sprouts wings and flying like an eagle to heaven. The loss of riches does not spoil a mature believer's life when he lives for the glory of God. Do not be like the fool who says to themselves, well, I have many goods. It's time for me to take it easy and eat and drink and be merry. None of us know when the Lord's going to require our soul. So please, do not lay up for yourself treasures in heaven or on earth. But instead, be rich towards God. Grubby Gouda. I couldn't find a word for tarnished goods, so I just used a Canadian word for money. It's a coin. That's all it is. But uh, their corrosion will be evidence against you. That grubby Gouda that you have will be evidence against you. The one with the most money does not win, my friends. Everyone who loves riches proves that they do not love the Lord. Riches do not have the capacity to love you back. So don't, don't store up earthly treasures. They will rot. 
rather lay up heavenly treasures. We had a camp last week, and uh, we each have groups of teens that uh, we are in charge of having discussion groups. And I asked the teens in my group at camp, what was the biggest temptation they, f they feel that they face as teenagers? One young man said money. He said, what makes the world go round? And he says, because it seems like if you have enough, your troubles go away. Oh, how right he is, but oh, how wrong he very is, because the Bible says another thing. I asked another question later on in the week, and I said this. It, if, you, um, if you knew your time was up and you had one month to live, what would you give up? And among a lot of good questions these kids uh, or answers that they had about giving up time away from their family or giving up time that they spent watching TV so that they can be with family and so that they can read their word. There was another one that was added, and I, I was quick to add this. I said, it'd be the last day I fixed things at my house, and I would start giving them away as quick as I could. I would, I mean, do you, do you really notice how much time we take taking care of the junk that we have, the many possessions that we acquire during our lifespan. Maybe we should take stock in the things that we have and do one of them spring cleans and just get rid of virtually everything we have. It'd be nice and start again. But there is a vulnerability to the rich, to us here who have possessions, in that we tend to not depend too much on God, but on ourselves, and all the time it takes to fix the things and keep them up. And we seem that we're never content with what God has already given us. Oh, to be content. Godliness with contentment is great gain, for he brought nothing into this world and we cannot take anything out. But if we have food and clothing, with these things, we ought to be content. Those who desire to be rich, they will fall into temptation. They will fall into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into destruction. For the love of money, say it with me, for the love of money is the root of all evil. It is through this that craving comes and wandering away from the flesh or, or from the faith. And, and I don't... Don't have even time to get into that about how people wander from the faith. But it does pierce people with many pains as they strive towards riches. Those who are rich, who will, they will be the ones who have to incessantly fight against boastfulness, against selfishness, against self-righteousness. They are called to humble themselves before the Lord. They are called to set their hope on him. They are called to be content. They are called to be rich in good works, and they are called to share. Guts. Still in verse 3. The corrosion of your wealth have been evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. God will use the corroded state of your heart as evidence against you. I use guts here because guts refer to the desires of our flesh instead of the desires of our heart. Think of the verse that goes, the enemies of the cross, and the end is their destruction. Their God is their belly, right? 
They glorify themselves in the shame that they have, the, the shame of the collection of things that they have, because their minds set on earthly things. The evidence of the corrosion that they have of materialism in the soul will consume the person captured by it. The sad reality is they're actually glorifying in the shameful desires, and they whisper things like, oh, look at me. I'm rich. Look what I have. You see that? Looks nice, doesn't it? Wish you had one. Even though we may not say that, we think that sometimes. See, desire, when it conceives and gives birth to sin, in sin, it fully grows up. It gives birth to death. You remember the dumpster fires a couple years ago from the protests? That was quite a sight. Rich hoarders are like walking dumpster fires. They destroy everything in their path. The accumulation of material goods produces a reaction in the soul, and it produces its own destruction. And we undermine our own souls by believing that if we can accumulate more coins, more money, that we'll be happy. We're just like a walking dumpster fire, ruining things in our path. And actually, we make it difficult for others around us, difficult for the times that we live in. We are in the last days, and in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. There will be people who will be lovers of self, lovers of money. They're going to be proud and arrogant and boastful. They're going to be ungrateful and unholy. They're not going to love good. They're going to be reckless and swollen with conceit. They're going to be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And they'll have an appearance of godliness, but denying its power. And we are to avoid these people. And you know why they deny God's power? Because they think money has power. I ask you, what do you think has more power? Money or God's grace? Point two is the evidence that we have that's found in verses four through six. If you look at your Bible, you'll see the word behold. That means we are to think with our mind's eye of uh, get a picture of what this type of person looks like. This is where I want you to ask yourselves with me, is this what I do? Do I possibly act this way? Remember, riches are okay. They are a blessing from God, and it's not the use of wealth, it's the abuse of wealth. Proverbs 10.22 uh, says, the blessings of the Lord make rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. So the Bible nowhere condemns people who are rich. Money is not evil, it's the love of it that's evil. Wealth is an instrument. It has value. The riches of the soul towards God, though, are intrinsically valuable. The instrumental value of money really has no value when you only have a month to live. It's not going to help you. But truth and love, however, those are going to last forever, and they're unchangeable, just like God's word. He conveys his riches to you and all who hear his word through the word of God. We are to receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save our souls. Imagine that. How about riches like that that's going to save your soul? Riches that last forever. Back to the evidence. We're going to fill in the blanks here. I'll, I'll give them to you so we could just pay attention to these uh, five things. It's fraud, 
loot, self-indulgent, madness, and murder. This comes from verses 4 and 5. If you look at your Bible, you can look at it here. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. Now skip to verse 5. It says, You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence, and you have fattened your hearts in the day of the slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous. And so the first one is fraud. And I ask you this. Do you keep back wages that you owe to others? It's fraud. Do you go through your house and see things that may not be yours, things that you've borrowed? Do it. Go back home, look through the things, and just give back these things that you've taken from others or things that you owe or your checkbook and what, things that you just need to give back. Pay back what you owe, basically. Did you pay all your taxes? Have you taken advantage of someone because you were a little bit more shrewd with your dealings? And there's nothing wrong with being shrewd, but sometimes we could take advantage of people. Whatever you owe, pay it back. Deuteronomy 24, uh, 14 through 15 says, You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he's your brother or whether he's just passing through. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, lest he cry out against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. Fraud is a sin. Loot. Do you have luxuries? Do you like to live a luxurious life? It's crying out against you. And there's nothing wrong with riches. There's nothing wrong with enjoying life. But how are you using them? Just for yourself? Or could it be investing in God's kingdom? Don't be like that rich young ruler who Jesus asked him to give his things away. And what did he do? He didn't give them away. He just walked away sad. I want us to be like Zacchaeus, the wee little man, who gave away half his wealth and four times what anything that he might have cheated anyone because you know why? He was joyful to be with the Lord. That's why he did that. And so that's what I'm calling you to be. I want you to be joyful in the Lord and so that your riches are not that important. Do you have a budget, though? Does it portion your money to share and to save and to live within your means? Or do you just spend your money until it's gone for the week? If you are a good saver, good. That's really good. But are you saving just for yourself? Or are you saving in order that you might bless others and, and serve others in a wise way? Are you inviting others over to eat your food and mess your house up? Loot is something that we hide. It's something that we keep away from others so that they don't touch it. Please don't treat your riches like loot. Use the God's, uh, God's provision of your house and your things, your clothing, your cars, to bless other people, to bless others. Don't treat it like loot. Self-indulgent. Are you self-indulgent? Is your focus too much on your own life? Do you think that um, it's at all about how you can help others or are you too enamored by the things that are going on and we all have a lot of problems I get it 
We all have issues and trials in this life. This life is hard. But how are we offering help to others? How can your money maybe be best used for somebody else? I know that many of you are happy that I'm talking about giving your money away because you do it. Many of you do here do that. And I'm very grateful for those who just recently gave a ton of money so that teens could go to a camp. You know that that's, they're going to remember that the rest of their life, going to uh, um, hear the word of God and be around God's people. I know I'm going to remember the people that gave for them for the rest of my life because it's what we do with our treasures that shows our true heart. And I'm thankful that there are some very generous people with hearts that are prone towards loving God here. You see, faith works in us, and it draws us to trust God, no matter what the circumstances. There's a careful balance between smart planning and wrongful hoarding. And so the next time, I, I want you to ask yourself, when you buy a, another storage tote to fill your house, ask yourself, what can I put in here so I can give it to someone else? Madness. Do you suffer from the madness of fattening your heart for the day of slaughter? Just like, a, picture this, a cow eating grass to gain weight in order to get more meat for us to eat it. That's materialism. It's maddening. And that's what is shaping the shame and the guilt and the charges against the fool who has a soul who trusts in riches. I do like the fact that James uses the word heart that is fattened for the day of slaughter. God wants you who are rich to boast in your humiliation. And if you're poor, don't focus too much on money. God wants you to focus on your exaltation. He's the one who has saved you. Murder. Now, I hope no one here has murdered anybody. I hope that has not happened. Um, but murder is, some, in, is in the terms of condemning someone, treating them as they are nothing, using your resources to make them pay or to take their advantage away from them. We know now in the world that there are many in this world that think that we are privileged. Many think that those of us here have an advantage simply because of the fact that we have some sort of privilege. But I ask you this, have you condemned someone else and just let it happen? Even if you haven't really condemned them, have you let things happen to others and let it happen? It, I understand, you know, even in the smallest amount, like still to this day, Christians are known as like the worst tippers, right, in the world. But are we cheerfully giving to others or do we want to hoard and get all that we can I encourage you to uh, write this in your notes 1 Kings 21 and we don't have time now but it's about Naboth's vineyard and it's about a guy named King Ahab and his wife Jezebel they did some really interesting things to that poor man so read that as you go home and figure out where do you stand. Have you done something hopefully not as despicable as that? 
I also would have talked or loved to have talked about Daniel 5 and 6 about Nebuchadnezzar, a rich man who thought he had everything, who really thought he made it all on his own, a self-made man. And God had him realize just who was in control. Someone who was turned into some type of cow eating grass. The thing is, though, you know, with Nebuchadnezzar, and if you go to Job, you'll find out that God is still kind to them because after the trial, after the situation, he gave both Job and Nebuchadnezzar more than they had beforehand. You know, even though we're sinfully hoarding money, God is just generous to us and he's kind to us and he provides for us. The Lord will not resist you. He will not um, let you um, resist him. I'm thankful that he draws us to him and he saves us. But if you're trusting in riches, he will also not resist you in that he will let you be given up by the lust of your heart because you exchange the truth for a lie. You are storing up wrath like a fattened cow. God's righteous judgment will be revealed one day. He will render each one according to his works. Wrath and fury for the self-seeking or eternal life who seeks God's glory. And we do it with patience and well-doing. If you do turn your heart to the Lord, God will not resist you. That is why it depends on faith in order to have the promise that rests on the grace that God gives, not our merit. And he gives it to all his offspring. So be patient, brothers and sisters, for the coming of the Lord. Strive for heavenly treasure like the man who sold everything and bought the land who had treasure on it. What is heavenly treasure? Well, it's believing with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul that God's promises are true. He offers eternal life for those who repent and believe. Friends, you are sinners, and, and sinners cannot be with God. And so instead, I ask you to be a sinner who confesses with your mouth and believes in God that he has enough power, more power than money, to love you and take away your sins and remember them no more. His wealth it far surpasses anything that you can imagine. And whether you have a little or you suffer with nothing, God will be glorified in you if you believe him as Lord and Savior. He always wins. Friends, do you believe in God's promises for salvation, for suffering, for eternal life? Do you also identify with his people, despite the sure affliction that's going to happen when you hang out with Christians? Don't be embarrassed to associate with God's people. According to this passage, it means don't associate yourself too much with money. And that's what happens when we love riches. We start to love the the. the thing rather than the creator who's given it to us and we don't end up hanging out with people we just hoard money and what it does for us don't get caught up in the lure of taking on two and three jobs to pay for that unaffordable house that you want or needing too many new cars 
every couple years or that a rational vacation you probably ought to put on hold? Or what about the toys that you have or the toys you want to give to your kids? Please don't get caught up into that rat race that will make you end up like Nebuchadnezzar and driven from others. You may have a lot of things, but you're going to have a boatload of stress. That money might look good in your hands, but according to God's economy, it's basically tufts of grass. It's rotten, it's moth-eaten, and it's tarnished, and it tarnishes the heart for those who do not love the Lord. God says don't do it. You can have riches, and he grants them to you, but exalt him, not your riches. Exalt him in your humiliation. Be content with your station of life that God has granted you. Don't hoard the riches that you have. Invest them in God's kingdom as a steward, not a stingy ox who thinks you own the money. We don't own it. We don't own anything. God owns it all. We're just stewards. Christians are reminded that God hears our prayers and that he will avenge all unrighteousness. And he hears you. He hears your cry of mercy. We are to not set a too high of an expectation on what wealth will bring to us. Nor are we to strive for wealth, thinking at what it's going to do for us or how we treat others who might be wealthy with favor or disdain because we don't have what they have. There's a quote from J.C. Ryle that says, it's possible to have money without loving it, and it's possible to love money without having it. Friends, hopefully whatever you have, you can love the Lord and not love money. On the bottom of your uh, bulletin, there's this uh, weird words. And if you read Daniel 4 and 5 with Nebuchadnezzar, right after Nebuchadnezzar regains his senses and gives glory to God, he has a son. And his son starts to love money too much. And his son starts to drink and be merry and the hand of the Lord starts to write on the wall. And it's these words. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. It means this. Numbered. Numbered. Weighed and divided. So from the account of Daniel 4 and 5, the Lord had numbered the days of Belshazzar. That's Nebuchadnezzar's son. He brought it to an end because he had been weighed in the balance and he had been found wanting. The repeated numbered, numbered, it suggests that it was going to happen quickly. Friends, if you put your trust in riches, you will be numbered, you will be weighed, and you will be divided. And it'll happen way quicker than you think. We do live in the last days, and it's not much time left. What are you going to do with your riches? First John 2 says, all these things are going to pass away. But whoever does the will of the Lord, they will abide forever. Friends, I do ask you to go ahead and look at these passages. Read uh, the account of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, read the accounts of Zacchaeus, the rich man. But think about what you have done with the riches you have. What can you do? with the riches you have. But I want you to think about the Lord and what he has done for you. Amen?